Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. With me, as always, is that genocidal Mabden, Jeff Goad. <laughs> ah, ha, ha. Give me your hand. Give me your eye. <laughs> and this week, we're very honored to have with us, as our special guest, Stefan Surratt, uh, owner of Dragon's Peak Publishing, uh, author of Mysteries of the Multiverse. Merchants of the Multiverse. Merchants of the Multiverse. <laughs> Mystery of the Multiverse, Brimstone yeah. Cradle, Hills That Hungers, there you go. various things for MCC, DCC, and Weird Frontiers. Perfect. And co-host of Rules as Written Twitch stream for Goodman Games as well. So there we oh. go. All right, said it better than I could. All right. And and Stefan and I met in the Tomb of Horrors. Oh, there you go. Yes, we did at a Cyclops Con long ago. Super, super. So, so excited to have you on. And so, Stefan, what is your secret origin? Uh, it came from video games, honestly. Uh, I like uh, games like Baldur's Gate and Stars Nights of the Old Republic. Um, then my buddy got uh, the 3.5 had just come out. So, all the three point stuff sale or 3.0 or 3 whatever. It was all on big sales. Uh, so we got the box set for three, uh, third edition, ran through that. I played Lydia, the halfling rogue, for my very first session, and I got trapped forever behind a magic mirror. And when I walked home that day, I just couldn't stop thinking about how I wanted to do that again and hopefully not, like, essentially die the next time. And uh, and my fate was pretty much sealed from then on. So, you know, obviously you're coming in from a little slightly later from what we would be Mm -hmm. called osr adjacent so what brought you to sort of dcc or sort of more osr adjacent type gaming uh uh, like a lot of people it was fourth edition um uh dnd uh i played a lot of 3.5 dm'd a lot of 3.5 played and dm'd uh less fourth and then me and my group we were like okay let's try other things we tried like vampire and a couple things before that uh but we started branching out and Around then, I think like Osric and Labyrinth Lord started coming out, and I couldn't convince my normal buddies to play that for years, but I started reading that stuff. And uh, one day I saw someone talking about Mighty Deeds of Arms on the on Reddit somewhere, and I was like, oh my god, some system solved fighters being super boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, <laughs> and uh, then I started listening to Spellburn and uh, found out about this Jeff guy eventually. Uh, and yeah, but I, I found out about Mighty Deeds and then like, you know, Mercurial Magic and all that other stuff. And I've just been in love with DCC ever since. One of the dirty little secrets of Dungeon Crawl Classics is that it's actually built on the third edition mechanics. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. act like it's this OSR game that's like <laughs> built on BX or something. It's not. It's yeah. based on third edition. Right. So because that was kind of where you came into gaming, mm-hmm. was there also some kind of comfort and appeal in that it was also kind of the same in that sense? Yes, uh, mostly because I was like, oh, good, good. Ascending armor class. Like it's descending is fine, but it's, it's a little bit more math. And for people who grew up used to high AC and fortitude and willpower saves and stuff like that, having that in the game made it an easier sell to, you know, the people I've been gaming with for over a decade as my like group since middle school. And in terms of that old school aesthetic, was that influenced by also the kind of reading you were doing? What is, what is your sort of like int- entry yeah. into science fiction and fantasy in that regard? Um, 
I I used to not like the the chocolate in my peanut butter of you know science fiction and fantasy. Now I love it. Um, but I from a I was reading like the Wheel of Time books. You know those like thousand page, fourteen book long. They they weren't all out then. But I've been reading those since I was like in the fifth grade. Um, and I was reading like the Deathgate Cycle by uh, uh, Weiss and Hickman, and then also like Tolkien and lovecraft and howard since i was a teenager i didn't know what appendix one was uh, or it was then um but i w- i was reading a lot of this stuff and you know i just finished uh you know i, I loved our book today but i also just finished red nails by conan uh mm-hmm. or, well by howard the conan story so i'm i'm like i'm fully in there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and having said that are there any texts uh or uh, whether fiction or nonfiction, that you particularly think uh, would be great for gamers uh whether to draw from for inspiration or to you know just show them other aspects of uh you know world building um, whatever it is yeah i think um i haven't done it i really love the uh like i already mentioned it, the the death gate cycle that it's a series of seven books by uh weissen hickman really like those when I, I was younger. I read them when I was probably in like early high school. And I I don't think they've ever gotten like any kind of gamification. I've never seen something and go, oh, that's totally from there. But they had a, a lot of cool ideas in those. So we'll keep a lookout for those. Should be available at your uh, book depositories and otherwise in other uh, ABE books. Uh, yeah, because mm-hmm. you definitely don't hear much about that. You know, you hear all about the Dragonland stuff, but not not that particular series. Yeah, they, they wrote a lot of other stuff. As, yep. uh, well, uh, I don't know. Not that many people know, I guess. Right. And uh, this week, we are reading um, Michael Moorcock's The Knight of the Swords, the first of the Quorum books. So uh, what uh, copy or edition are you working with, Stefan? Uh, I got the 2015 edition from uh, what, Titan Books. Okay. Is the, they had that copy and like five of them at my local used bookstore. So, What's the cover look like? Uh, it's actually pretty cool. It's got uh, a, a hand, a gauntlet reaching up into an eye, kind of over a another kind of very simplified eye symbol and some what looked like some kind of runic thing that wouldn't be like too out of place in a pseudo Celtic thing. There you go. I am working with the 1977 Berkeley Medallion Omnibus. Mm-hmm that combines this, the, the trilogy into one book. And the cover is just this kind of generic, like guy on a horse with an, with armor on carrying some like topless lady around. Um, is this really sure. horse holding a sword in its mouth? Um, no, I think it's pulling at the reins. Okay. Jeff showed it to the camera and it looked like that when it was a little smaller. And I was like, that's definitely not from the books. (laughs) You know, and as I recall, Jeff, that's one of the books that we traded very early on when we were still here in Brooklyn and we had extra copies of this book or that book. And, Oh, was it? Yeah. So it's possible. Yeah. 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 But it's funny because I had that book for years and never read it. I don't know why. It was a discussion in our half of the book club, too, that a bunch of us had never read the book, even though we had all those other Michael Moorcock stuff lying around. Oh, and just to wrap up, the, the cover is by Ken Barr. And in addition to reading this paperback, I also listened to the dramatized adaptation of The Night of the Swords, which is available on Audible. Okay, I, Stephanie I also listened bit, to that. Yeah, I did a little combo reading in that. It's really good. It's right. really yeah. good. Yeah, it's produced so well. Um What's interesting is when you read it along with the book, though, because it's dramatized, it's not always one for one with the text you're reading. Like the text might say, you know, Coram 
pondered the moonlight, and then in the and then in in the dramatized adaptation, it'll be um, boy, look at that moonlight, uh, in, in, in the voice of the guy who does Corum. Right, but. Other than little things like that, it right. was the one same. of our one of our book club uh, patrons also had listened to. It. He said, "I was ashamed." He said, "No, no, no, no." I'm sure Jeff did the exact same thing. So <laughs> I said, "No, no, you're you're always forgiven." <laughs> I'll say uh, it's also it's. I'm sure it's not supposed to be there, but I found it on YouTube, and our dear listeners probably can too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I've had many many copies of this book floating around through the years, and never read it. I've had the White Wolf uh, hardcover. Uh, you know, had the first three books. I had that one that I gave Jeff. So um, you may have mer- mentioned that my friend James, who had passed away last year, I was uh, had was a big Moorcock fan. So I was helping to. Um, uh, prepare his house for sale early in the spring. And so I was able to bring back some books from his library. So I have the British Mayflower edition. Nice. Ooh, that's the, a really cool cover. With the Bob Haberfield cover. And Those it's, are the best. Yeah. And it's got sort of like Ariok as a sort of weird Hindu deity with, you know, breathing fire and it's got skulls stuck on his head. And, and you can see Coram as a tiny little figure there in the front. <laughs> um, That's awesome. So good. It's a very good, there's a couple of typos in here and like, it's sort of like weird line interpretations, but I'm like, nope, this is how they read it on the bus in Britain back when. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And so, and in our in our patron book club, that's the edition that Dan Alexander was reading. Those uh, those Mayflower Moorcock books had the best covers. Yeah, so they're I, so good. Yeah, I just had to. I just had to read it. I knew I had other copies that might have like more cleaned up texts and not. I said, nope, this is the one I'm reading. So there we go. All right. So having said that, uh, we have a high Gaxian word this week, and Jeff, you and I landed on the same word this week. Yes, we sure did. All right, here it is. Insouciant. Insouciant, showing a casual lack of concern or indifference. There you go. I've also got this section that that comes from. It's on page five of my edition. It's it's in the very last part of the introduction. And it says, there will always be such beings, sometimes beings of great wisdom who cannot bear to believe in an insouciant universe. Nice. I know. It's such a good word for this book, too. Right. I'm, I'm living, we we're living in an insouciant universe right now, and I can't believe it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had been looking at for one, and I had actually thought of uh, Margrave because I didn't know what that was. It was clear it was a title, and and I looked it up, um, mm-hmm. and it's like a comes from the Holy Roman Empire, and uh, it's you know a title for someone who essentially keeps rule uh, uh, over a like a feudal you know border province, and you know so we got the Margrave in here, and you know the Margrave's domain is the Margravate, right. That is a good word. Yes, it's definitely yeah. very specific. And it's one that just didn't occur to me because it was just there. It's like, oh, it's there, Margrave, Margrave, Margrave. It's, it's funny how yeah. you can become dated <laughs> to certain light. <laughs> uh, anyway, so having said that, what did uh, you think of this book, both as um, it, the thing itself and and how it reads today? I thought it was really good. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I listened to the the show a lot. And uh I, when I when I reached out being like, hey, I'm doing a thing, you know, it'd be cool to come on and maybe say something about it. I was in the back of my mind. I was like, I hope I get a good book. Some of them are not <laughs> great. Uh, but this one was really good. I really enjoyed reading it. I will probably read, you know, at least two and three also or, or listen to the dramatization mm-hmm. on my commutes. Um, it was uh, it was more like. Uh, Moorcock's Sailors on the Seas of Fate in its kind of tone than it was like, you know, uh, Elric of Malnibane. Mm-hmm. 
uh, for my part, again, I've said I've had this book for years, and a couple of our guests mentioned the same thing, that they found it atypically hard to get into, even though it's a, a sh- very short book. It's only 143 pages in my copy. Um, but it was really the barrier is only like three or four pages. But somehow it seems so weird that it's hard to get into a Moorcock book right away. But uh, soon, as soon as I was in, though, like I was in all the way. So And, and it's, it's very funny that I was able to read Hawkmoon and Elric and all these other books over the years. And this was the one that like, I wasn't able to get into. My <laughs> friend has always been saying, uh, all my other friends who read Moorcock, oh, you've got to read Corum, you've got to read Corum. Um, so I really enjoyed this one. And I was struck actually about how savage this book is with Elric has the reputation of being the doom and gloom mm-hmm. book, but the, the, there's great beauty in here, but the savagery is really savage in this book. This oh, one's yeah. mean. Yeah. yeah. Corum is, it's not a good time for Corum. No, <laughs> no, no. Or for the worlds at large in general. Yeah. No, no. I absolutely adored this book. I, I loved it so much. I had no problem getting into it from the first sentence to the last. I was in it. I was just, I had so much fun reading this and listeners of the show know that I'm a little OCD and I like to make my list of the order in which all these books fall from my favorite to least favorite. This one made my top 10 as well. So now four of my top <laughs> 10 are Michael Moorcock books. All right. Who, who got kicked out uh, which, of the top 10 for this one? <laughs> Uh, sadly, uh, Hyro's Journey moves oh, no. to 11. Oh. oh, no. Yeah. But um, I I loved this. I loved this so much. Um, I don't like it more than... I don't... I, so far, I don't like Corum more than Elric, but I like Corum a lot more than Hawkmoon. And, um, and I get why Corum is so popular and beloved, because unlike Elric... Corum is in some ways very relatable. So I think it's a lot easier for us to kind of project ourselves onto Corum in a way that you can't really do with Elric as easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Eric, Elric also starts out just being too, too darn moody. Yeah. Um, Corum is like slow and like, oh, you know, maybe I'll go out and find stuff if, that would probably have really dire implications, but I do want to finish this, you know, little symphony I've been working on for the past four years. So he's not like jumping at the bit to get going, but like when he does, (laughs) the world refuses to let him stop. Right. Yeah. I think there's a couple things going there with that sort of slightly slow beginning too. I think one is, it's really is setting the stakes, right? Cause Nolimini mm-hmm. is really amazing, but as you say, it's not relatable. It's like this 10,000 year old, uh, you know, inhuman empire that uses torture for symphonies. Right. And this is a guy, who just, <laughs> you know, he just kind of wants to be left alone. His pastoral, he's, he's there with his, his, Family and friends are all great buds, you know, in this castle. Yeah, you know? there's only like 12 people. He's yeah. not a, no one's an extrovert. Extroverts don't exist for the Vada. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. And while we all can't necessarily relate to the person who's been sitting in a castle writing symphonies for fun, yeah. I think what we can relate to with Corum, which is different than Elric, is Corum's story is really kind of about a loss of innocence. Mm-hmm. It's about venturing out of your home um, into the world at large and then just kind of discovering how fucked up and terrible things really are outside of outside of the world that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. I think that can that's that's I think the relatable part for right. a lot of people. And yeah. <laughs> this book was originally chosen, you know, I usually do these, you know, very loose themes for how books get chosen by our our patrons. And this was originally elves everywhere. So like Corum is, you know, pretty much an elf. Kind of, right. Yeah. Um but I think um 
that in some ways this is also sort of a reaction or commentary on the Tolkien elf in that you can't just sit there in Rivendell, you know, chilling for 400 years because things are going to change around you. Right. <laughs> right. And it's, it's the, the perfect life that Corum and the Vadag have comes at the expense of their not paying attention to the very things that are going to destroy them, right? And it feels very uh, contemporary at this moment, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sure does. Yeah, it seems to be grappling with a lot of kind of big issues. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them being the kind of um, incomprehensible cruelty that humanity is capable of and the way that we destroy beauty and kindness and um, and and peace and all of these things for such trivial reasons, kind of the cosmic horror mm-hmm. of that alone. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say the thing I noticed in it is every every bad thing happens basically because someone is underestimating someone else. The Vagda yes. underestimate the Mabdin, who are essentially just men. That's their word for it, dear dear listener. Um, they underestimate men and just start comfortable because they have a very comfortable life. The men get the upper hand. Some bad things happen. Quorum goes another place. He knows a whole bunch of bad things are out there. He gets comfortable, underestimates men and overestimates, you know, their security there. Bad things happen. And there's, uh, let's just say there's a sorcerer, there's a king, there's a god, there's other characters, and they all underestimate other factions to one extent or another. And uh, gets there, there's consequences. All right. I love that. That's um, a very similar but slightly different worded um, observation than what I made in the book club, which is I was talking about how it really seems like this book is exploring the dangers of maybe not the dangers, but um, but arrogance, the things that come when you get too Mm -hmm. arrogant and complacent. And like they were talking about how um, on page 28 of my edition, the Mabden had written out in their arrogance born of ignorance and destroyed those whose arrogance was born of wisdom. And so then, and also later we've got Shul who arrogantly thinks he's becoming another God, but really he's just the plaything of Ariok. But Ariok also arrogantly (laughs) thinks that there's no way this little puny mortal can have any effect on him. And Coram completely takes him down. There's a line, uh, it's page nine in, in my edition. It's about, it's a Vagta saying about the Mabdin, and it's, if they valued what they stole, if they knew what they were destroying, then I would be consoled. Which, yes. uh, right. Yeah, you can just apply vandals. that to a lot of things. Uh, right. To me, yeah. it spoke to environmentalism these days. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, I think it's kind of instructive. I'm, you know, again, that history nerd. Um, the Elric books were, you know, created, uh, when Moorcock was a teenager. And so basically the first Elric stories were written between like 1959 and 1965, I think it's the first publication or 63, 65. This was written in 1971. So uh, Moorcock is now a working journalist. He's been out there. This is sort of the, we've seen much of the worst of the Vietnam War, the, um, the reaction to the civil rights movement in the United States and a bunch of other things that are going on, Prague Spring. So this is... Um, reflecting on a world that is becoming unsettled yeah in very deep very fundamental ways or has already become unsettled in very fundamental ways and again that's why i feel it it resonates so much with our very moment today you know Mm -hmm. um 
Well, and also Moorcock grew up while London was being bombed, bombed yeah. during World War II. So yeah. I think it's also kind of an exploration of what was lost under Nazi rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the the very literal genocides that are happening here very much mirror the genocides of World War II and the mm-hmm. Nazis. For sure, for sure. And what I'm basically saying is that he had that context, but Elric was a more personal struggle. And that Corum becomes a, a more about the human or inhuman condition um you know so he's looking outwards a little bit more than in the elric books is what it's what it you know he's drawing on the same things but he's looking outwards now um what's also interesting though is there is still some of the conservatism that you and i saw with the worm ouroboros though mm -hmm. because although um quorum is absolutely shocked and appalled by the savagery of men um the savagery of humans like specifically that they enslave each other that they torture each other. And he's like, the Vodok never do things like that. But also, the I mean, obviously there are different levels to these things, but the Vodok were at war with the Nodrok for a millennia yeah. and they murdered more than two thirds of each other. So it's, it's not like mm-hmm. they are also not aware of like the cruelty and like the horrific things that creatures are capable of doing. But I understand that torture and enslavement. Well, you know, or it's a mythology that he created for themselves. Yeah, know. I was about to say it is that felt like to me the same kind of historical rev, uh, revisionism that uh, you see a lot about, uh, you know, the United States has passed and, mm-hmm. uh, you okay. know, going, oh, no, we were. Yeah, we had slaves, but we were like kind slave masters in our family that that kind of thing Ooh. of like, oh, we treated them well. No. We fought war honorably, and it's like it was still war, my man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was still slavery, my man. What? Is, there is no kind way to wage war. There is no kind way to own another person. Right, right. So yeah. I, I think that is just the like Corum was not a part of that really. That is just the history he was he, told. He benefited by his from it. Old yeah. father, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he, and the same way that this is uh, this is nineteen seventy one. It's you know swinging London. It's post colonial. Britain, but Britain that that swinging London doesn't, doesn't exist without the British Empire, Mm-mm. you know that went two three hundred years before that, right? And so, um, and so that again that complacency of you're at the metropole, you're at the center of the empire, so you don't actually see all the dark stuff that happens at the edges to allow you to live your comfortable lifestyle. I mean, so, even in the castle, they had servants. Corum sits and composes songs all day for four years, except when he doesn't feel like it, he never does anything, but they do have like other Vagda servants. So it's like, there's, you see that structure there still. Right, right. He's just naive and unaware of it. Right. And then he could treat training for wars. Oh, is, is the, the uh, antique, was it the word, the, the antique art of war or something like that? Something, some <laughs> something. phrase like that. It's some kind of like, Oh, he, cause he does have weapon skills. He just have no application in the sense that he never realizes what they're actually for. <laughs> you know? What's also interesting that um, and I'm curious what's going on with with Moorcock and why he is grappling with this one particular thing so often. But we also see that thing we that thing that we see in Elric a lot, which is that the tools that he uses to protect himself ends up causing all of this harm and suffering around him. Mm-hmm. You know, Elric ends up killing Cimmeril with Stormbringer, and here um, Corum ends up um, slaying his own people when he brings those those folks through the veil. Yeah. Um, and Coram's 
magic demigod hand ends up like ripping out the eyeballs and choking to death his like his his new his newest best friend yeah <laughs> yeah Corum thinks he's the last of his race alive and then he finds more for like five minutes and yeah but he doesn't realize that until he's killed off all but one of them and the one he didn't kill is this old lady he's about to die anyways yeah it's uh i'll say Corum. this book has a lot i'll, I'll Say for anyone who hasn't read the book who's considering, uh, you know, content warning for a whole lot of violence and a uh, brief scene of uh, zombie sexual assault. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Which um, uh, was, I was, uh, as a reader, I was glad that was kind of glossed over because I didn't want to read that. But it was, I was also kind of like, wow, this character, she, she recovered from that really quick, it seems. Uh, she got over that. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so for for um for those of you who that was too much for, I would not recommend that you watch the film Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. Uh, which, <laughs> yeah. 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 which is a seventies Italian horror film that is quite quite raunchy. Right. Um to sort of expand on your point of this like collateral damage though, um I think Moorcock, many people were aware of the Dresden bombings. So even when we're not even talking, you know, just in the context of the British awareness of things and we're, so that, we're not even talking about colonialism we're talking about something that can people consider an unambiguously good which is world war ii fighting the nazis right but even then people said then the dresden bombings was maybe a step too far right and it's that kind of thing um the the eye you know destroying you know basically you know innocence and then they they're enslaved right because the, the innocence who whoever's destroyed yeah. by whoever's captured in that pocket dimension by the eye they go in there and they're in there until they're released to kill the next thing that goes and replaces them, right? And so this is like the, these are the horrible, you know, we're going to use these horrible things like firebombing of Tokyo or Dresden bombings. We're going to do these things that are incredibly horrible just to end this thing a little quicker because we're in the right. And, you know, again, people would say, you know, that the, the allies were unambiguously on the good side of things in World War II, but still all this horrible stuff was done by us and in our name of the good, right? Yeah. And it is a, a really great cursed magic item or, or pair of them. I'm sure you didn't yes. base it off of the hand and eye of Vecna, but it, it reminded me of that. But I mean, a, right. a hand and an eye is kind of a, a good combo, no, no right. matter where it came from. I'm, I'm sure Gary Gygax didn't make that up right. on a whole cloth. And well, then, Gary Gygax actually didn't make up Vecna. The the gray the 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 pantheon that is attributed to Greyhawk is actually created by a guy named Brian Bloom. Okay. And Brian Bloom created Vecna, and um, I was reading a little bit about this because as I was reading the book, I was like, clearly this is where Vecna comes from, right? So I did a little bit of googling, ended up on the Dragon's Foot forums. And somebody was talking about how Brian Bloom created these, not Gary, and Gary did not have these gods in his Greyhawk campaign. Um, but he also pointed out that Vecna is an anagram for Vance. Mm, Jack Vance, right. Mm, yeah. Uh, so it's 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 very likely that whoever did come up with was a, come up with this was a big reader of this style of writing anyway. So mm. probably was very inspired by these cursed god artifacts. Right. Now, I know that... Um couple other things i know that this draws a lot on celtic mythology and specifically uh, cornish mythology which i'm not that familiar with but there's a couple other echoes here uh, you know the eye is also like the eye of balor which is the fomorians you know the evil giants in celtic mythology um but also i think the whole pros- 
uh, you know, when he's being tortured by the Mab, then the, us, the humans, and he's on the board there and he gets his eye plucked out and his hand chopped off. It also has echoes of something like Odin, you know, on a tree and having his eye plucked out. And oh, that yeah. is the, yeah. that is the sacrifice to gain knowledge. And, and once you have knowledge, you can no longer be innocent, right? You know, the apple from the tree, the eye being plucked out to be able to see into other worlds now, essentially. Um, this is, you know, this is, again, everything in here, as, as Jeff, you say, is a, about that loss of innocence. And you can take a pause from it as they do at the end of the book or even in the middle book when he, he meets um, Rolina, but you can never truly escape it. It's out there in the world, right? And if you think you were escaping it, then you become complacent. And that's when all these other things happen around you. Um, also, one thing I would like to chat about briefly is the the meat cute of um, Coram and Relina. So I just I just thought it was so stupid. I, I love this book, but the their the beginning of their love affair, I thought was so dumb. So Coram comes to this castle. And the lady Relina is like, oh, you're clearly messed up. You've had your eyeball torn out. You've had your, 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 your hand ripped off. Come, let's have mm-hmm. dinner. She drugs him with like a healing sleeping drink. He wakes up in her bed and she's stroking his hair. And she's like, I think I love you. And he's like, I love you too. Let's have sex. And then like, that's like the beginning of their love story. It's really <laughs> quick. <laughs> but also it's like, you just drugged him. Like, I understand you drugged him for his own good, I guess. But like, he very quickly got over that and then was just like, sure, let's bang and love each other. <laughs> And the Vagda they're describing, but they don't look like just typical humans. They've got like elongated heads and like they look purple eyes. Yeah. Yeah. They look weird, weird, wispy hair that as soon as there's any breeze, their wispy hair is just flying everywhere. I won't say they don't sound particularly attractive. Yeah. I I found the description. It's really early, like ears that were almost without lobes and tapered flat along the head. And yeah, the ears and full lips uh, or full lipped mouths and skin that was a strange gold flecked rose pink. They're uh, well proportioned. They move leisurely, made with a human gait that seemed like the shambling of a crippled ape. Yeah. What a hottie. Elves. (laughs) Elves. Um, I will say if you guys do uh, Google, you know, image searches, you'll find that, uh, I mean, by far there's the most Moorcock work is Elric art, right? But there's a significant body of Coram artwork, which is really nice looking. There's um, some stuff by Robert Gould, who's like the classic, one of the classic uh, uh, Moorcock artists, you know, cover artists for the Berkeley books in the 80s. Um, there was a first comics adaptation. I think Mike Mignola did the artwork on that. Um, so some really interesting artwork with Coram, um, but just not quite as iconic as, you know, Elric with his, you know, black sword. Um, yeah. So... Um, and also, um, looking at the appendix, and Gary Gygax specifically cites um, two Elric books and three Hawkmoon books as what to read from Michael Moorcock. He does not mm-hmm. specifically cite the Corum books. Interesting. Which I think is interesting, just because these are so good and feel so... D- and they just feel so D&D to me. Like, I, I understand oh, yeah. parts of what feel D&D to me are also in the Elric stories. But, like, when we're hanging out with, with, with both... Um, with Shul and with um, Ariok, but especially with Ariok, it's like we're looking right at like the Demon Princes section of the 1977 Dungeon Master, uh, mm-hmm. um, um, 
monster manual. Right. Yeah. And and since you mentioned it, and and uh, I know Stefan's running short on time, I consider this our, maybe our soft transition into the gaming side anyway, and we can just keep on talking about in terms of yeah. gaming. Um, yeah, and I think the uh, the use of the map, and we always talk about you know whether um, we should have non-humans as you know you know de- uh, demi-humans and humanoids as opposition and antagonists, and w- whether that's encouraging kind of like uh, light thoughts of you know uh, dismissal of genocide. We're here it's right front and center. And the orcs are us, right? The Mab, yeah, that's us. They're, they're, they're human, not, right? N- not every Mab in it. It's not a monolithic culture in here, but right. a lot of them are that. They, right. The other Mab are like, oh, the pony tribes. Right, right. So that, yes. So he's smart enough to say it's not monolithic, but here we are and we can't help ourselves almost because we're just so much of us out there. Yeah. Hashtag not all Mabden. Right, not all <laughs> Mabden. <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of D&D terms, right, you know, in, in early D&D, you have these wilderness encounters and you have like two, to two uh, 20 to 200 brigands, right? Yeah. And that's that's where you have it, right? You have your... Have your yeah. <laughs> this Hope those is what's tribes don't band together. Hope it's just yeah. 20. Right, exactly. You know, my, my favorite random encounter in this, in this, in this novel was when he is on his boat on his way to the island and he like randomly encounters this like i don't know sea giant or storm giant Mm -hmm. or titan yeah it's hundreds of feet tall it's gotta be yeah and he's just fishing with his net and doesn't even Mm -hmm. notice that quorum is there and because of this like random encounter his 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 boat ends up getting like capsized and he's knocked off his ocean Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Loses a bunch of his gear. Yep. Uh, you know, you have a pit trap there at the end after uh, after uh, mm-hmm. Coram has slain all of the um, uh, the people with the bird clubs. You know, the bird claw clubs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. yeah. Like, the the island of Shul seemed like a. We didn't get like a huge amount of description on it, um, but it seemed like a really cool place. There would be like the the site. You know go quest after it and you have to steal something from shul or like a maybe if you toned it down a little bit like a a manse for a powerful wizard in like a dying earth dcc Mm -hmm. thing and of course shul plays the role of a you know a gcc patron essentially for for a little bit there um oh yeah and this i think if you are trying to figure out how to wrap your brain around patrons and dungeon crawl classics i think this book just like the last few chapters of this book is all you need to read to kind of understand mm-hmm. really like the right ways to use patrons. And, and also in general, I really love how often the characters end up making, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like contracts agreements with these like really yeah. powerful Pax. entities. Pacts. Pacts. Yeah. Yes. They, they make a pact with a powerful entity to solve a problem. That's definitely a problem in the short term and they get the solution they need, but now they're like in it and they owe this thing something. And it's going to be really hard to get out of this thing. And any magic item they're given is totally double-edged, which is, you know, oh, yeah. that's oh, totally, yeah. that's totally, uh, you know, right up, you know, that's Dan Bishop to a T. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Shul is like a step below maybe Sezracon in, right. if you're looking at just Dungeon Crawl Classics, but sure. just barely. Yeah. And I love yeah. how Shul keeps on manifesting in different ways. 
you know, it's like, oh, well, I can do whatever. So he's here. He has this like very disturbing teenage girl. He's there. It's like, you know, a different thing. Blob you know? monster. Blob monster. Well, it's because to keep his immortality, he has to hop from, from body, to body. Yeah. body to body. Yeah. 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 Uh, but what I love is that Shul's power is coming from Ariok, who he thinks is his enemy. Yeah. And Shul thinks he's this like really powerful god yeah. who's soon going to be like the leader of all of the gods. Right. But really, like, uh, Ariok just gives him power because he thinks it's kind of fun to have this like little goofy guy who like thinks he's his thinks he's his enemy. Right. And I love yep. the idea of having in a in a campaign where like your god who your cleric worships it turns out actually isn't really a god at all they're just this like entity that's being given power by this other god just because they think it's kind of funny to have them around right. I, I mean the, it's a great like third act twist in it if you did an adventure kind of like this that'd be a great third act twist of like you you set up the heist you go journey to the location, you get there, and then the guy is just like, oh, I yeah, I didn't know like the details, but yeah, this is all according to plan. It's pretty much just fun and games for me. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ariok doing and then we find out that even Ariok has these limitations, right? He can't actually get to his heart. He was actually tricky. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, yeah, so yeah. He, uh, he they get to a point where there's a door and uh and Corum sees this chaos symbol on the door. He's like, hey, hey, what's that? He's like, oh, n- uh, nothing. Don't pay attention to that. <laughs> it's just like, that's, that's like a really close paraphrasing of what happens there. Right. It's just totally it really DD. Every time you play DD, you're like, oh, the quest giver. It's like, okay, when are we going to have to kill this quest giver? Do we mm-hmm. kill this quest giver right now or do we kill them when we get back <laughs> with the treasure? <laughs> you know? um, but, you know, actually, uh, Jeff, you were saying about uh, false gods and in uh, I can't do a page citation there, but in AD and D in the DMG, uh, clerics are not given their spells. They're given uh, which spells at which levels are given granted in different ways. So I think like first or second level spells are just through your devotion and your your knowledge, right? Third and fourth are like some intermediary entity, and it's only like the sixth and seventh spell level spells that are actually given directly by the god. Okay. And so you could say like, oh, clerics low level. So you could in theory have a thing that's not really a god, but you could be a cleric. And as long as you don't get up to like trying to get sixth and seventh level spells, it might just be this other thing, right? That's kind <laughs> of a god, maybe not, and it's giving you spells. Um, Isn't there an old school? I don't. I don't remember if this is deities and demigods or if it's in something else. But isn't there a thing where it tells you what spell level they can give you? Sp- spells up to yeah i mean that's what i'm saying that's basically there's somewhere in in uh can't, can't give you the pi- the page citation but in the dmg essentially so like but i specifically i feel like i can oh you mean whether it's seeing, demigods can give it as, as opposed yeah, to exactly. gods see, and, seeing with each god a list of like the like for like one god will be listed and it'll say can grant spells up to seventh level right, right. that, might be, that might, be the, might be the ddg but i'm not 100 sure about that i, I, I cannot yeah. recall it might yeah. maybe it's in one yeah. of the like complete cleric books you know they did yeah. one of those for each yeah. class it might be or maybe it was in the what what is the deities and demigods of od and d um gods uh gods demigods and heroes yeah it yeah. might have been in that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so so Stefan, what are you mm-hmm. stealing from this um I, I want to steal like the random encounters, uh, honestly, and and kind of Shul's Island. Um, I, I I really do like that idea of go to this island and you know, a super powerful wizard. Um, I don't have anything like hard thing, but I kind of want to steal all of the bits and pieces, really. Yeah, there's so much stealable from this. I I want to steal the kite. <laughs> I like the idea that you can hop up onto the kite, roll a D8 to see which direction it's going, unless 
the gods have other plans in mind, and then you will go in whatever direction fate mm-hmm. is sending you. Right. Um, actually, there's a cool piece of text about that. Let me pull that up. And oh, maybe. I, yeah. Speaking of like quirky uh, flying, you know, the bats. I think the bats were great. Uh, from uh, you know, they're they're they have their personalities. And, uh, they're kind of hard to manage, so we only you know bring them out. <laughs> What's going on? Never during the winter because they they won't cooperate during the winter. Yeah, that was a great piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, love that. I also just love the idea of being able to pull these like you know little Grim Reaper characters from mm-hmm. another dimension mm-hmm. to just come and slay your enemies for funsies. Mm-hmm. Also, I love that Shul was the god of everything that died beneath the waves. Like that's a really Ooh. cool, really specific god of like right. you everything that dies in this one specific way, right? And this is where this text dovetails really nicely with the last book we read, which is the Knight and Knave of Swords, the last of the Fritz Leiber, um, Thafford and Great Master stories. Because in the Knight and Knave of Swords, we explore the kind of power limitations of gods, and in it, we talk about how. Um, there is a geographical limitation to the power of gods. What I really like in this story is how we talk about the um, the limit to um, God's omniscience. And in this in, in, in this world, gods have com- basically complete omniscience over the things that um, they are the God of. So like the gods of man know everything humans are up to. They're, they just, they know what's going on, but anything that's not related to them, they have no idea. And I, I kind of love that that would be what a God would be aware of. Literally anything related to what they cover, but nothing else. I like that too. That's a good way, you know, because especially we're, uh, there's very few settings that are like monotheistic. That's a great way to have all of your many gods. Yeah, because if they all know everything that's going on, then how can you create plots against anything? Right, right. And I think it would be interesting, uh, I mean, because we have also these overlapping things like, well, here's a here's the elvish god of the sea, and here's the human god of the sea. And so what does that imply, right? You know, in, in a game where you have that that type of thing. Um, and by the way, I think, I think Rick was mentioning, this is the actual um, first time, we do see Ariok mention and show up and just talk, but this is the first time we see Ariok as like the big bad in, in uh, and he's, he's quite different. There's he he manifests once as he appears to Elric, you know, very very urbane. But the actual manifestation that Corum is dealing with, I think, is just great. It's, it's just like <laughs> very nightmarish. Yeah, you know, it's it's like you know, humans are just lice crawling on him, <laughs> and he's just like belching and covered with hair, and just like yeah, they're, they're eating his, his flesh. They're yeah. having sex on him. Yeah. Like they're going through like whole life cycles. Yeah. Just it's, crawling on their god, like yeah. fleas that he just bats off sometimes when they get extra annoying. Little moments like Ariok slapped his body, killing a dozen or so Mabden, and then scratched his stomach. He inspected the bloody remains in his palm and absently wiped them in his hair. <laughs> yeah. So good. So good. So good. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely kind of uh god level but sort of relatable it's it's and 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 it's not quite cosmic horror because still relatable right ariok has a personality he has uh you know a uh, certain level of pettiness that you know manifests he's like well mm-hmm. you know now that i've got my heart back i can uh you know get it on and and, and duke it out with the you know the i guess the queen and the king of swords you know that we'll see later on um and, and I'll, I'll 
to add to that, I like how they uh, they really set up doing further books by talking about the other planes. You know, oh, we're in this one plane. We could normally see the other five, but now it's harder. And some say there's up to 10 or 15 planes that, you know, we can, Quorum is able to like go into another plane like briefly once or twice in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it used to be he could, they could do more, all the Vagda. Um, and it, yeah, it does a really good job of setting up further stories and implying that bigger setting in the, in, in the book. I, I was looking and couldn't find a spot to read now, but right, they right. describe the other planes really cool ways. Right. And I think this is where the first time, because, you know, I think that, um, you know, Michael Moorcock came up with, you know, a lot in chaos he didn't come up with, but he came up with sort of the cosmic balance, um, you know, and then you always get the feeling that Michael Moorcock leans a little bit more towards chaos because, you know, he, you know, it's still kind it's of more fun you know, to write more fun. You know, it's it's it's, you know, uh, ultimately he believes in, in freedom where, you know, um, but this is like the first book where he sort of makes a case for law what law can be not just completely a, a straight jacket completely moralistic structured uh you know that that um you get you have to have something to to wrap around so that we can have some level of stability so that we can have beauty we can have peace we can think about these things but you can never just stultify and just sit there and, and just you know do, do your four-year symphony on your glass harmonium <laughs> right? yeah. What I found interesting, though, was in the final chapter of the story, we're hanging out with Lord Arkin, who's one of the Lords of Law. And he gives this whole monologue about the importance of balance and the equilibrium and the balance between law and chaos. And I thought that was interesting because I was I was thinking that the Lords of Chaos would want things to be tipped towards chaos. And the Lords of Law would want things to be tipped towards law. But then here we had this Lord of Law telling us why it's really important to have a balance between the two. Right. And I think that's atypical in the Ulrich books. They do, they do want, they're completely polarized. Right. And it's yeah. this book. And the only a, I could say that obviously Moorcock wrote this a few years on from Elric, the Stormbringer, right. Cause Stormbringer is like what 65 again. Um, and also that Arkin was exiled and he was not a God of law for a while. He was just a sort of entity exiled to the, the, the material plane. And he's just the giant of, of lair or whatever it was right at that point. So maybe he has some perspective that a God of law that never ascent, you know, descended to the, the primal, you know, the material plane wouldn't have. Right. And in AD and D the neutral alignment doesn't usually mean that you don't give a shit. It means that you are aligned with the balance, with the balance of the forces mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in AD&D, druids have to be neutral and they have to be, if you want to play a druid, there's like evil NPC druids. But if you want to play a druid, you have to be neutral. Yeah, they're, and, they're more Zoroastrian yeah. in some ways. Yes. Yeah, and it's interesting that also when, when we first meet Lord Arkan, Lord Arkan, he is the uh, giant of Lar who also apparently brings injured animals to the castle for them to heal. So, I mean, it seems like this Lord of law is kind of a Druid. Yeah. And I like that Coram, Coram realizes that he's just another animal to Arkin and that's why he's brought to the castle to be healed. (laughs) 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 Um, But that very last vision that Coram has, you know, and when he sees the balance and, and actually in the balance, in the cups of the balance of the Lords of law and chaos, they don't even realize that they're not the highest power. They're just, right. They're these things that are just, uh, struggling and, and, and bashing around and, and causing problems for everybody. Um, but that there's something 
above that that doesn't really touch us on a day-to-day basis but that can speak to us and that so um but i am very excited to read the rest of the rest of at least the original trilogy and possibly the second trilogy depending on how that goes oh yeah, yeah. me too definitely yeah and Stefan, I feel like when we were going through the story and they encounter that 20 mile city that had like fallen from the sky from another plane, I was like, that's so MCC. Yeah, that was, I was like, I want more about that. I know I'm going to get like one paragraph, but I want more about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're lucky, it, it might just be a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> but that's perfect. I guess from the gaming point of view, right? It's like, oh, I can do whatever I want. I've got that one thing. I can, I can do whatever I want with that uh, without it sort of contradicting canon and i think that was what was amazing about morcock he would just throw out these like little one sentence like or mm-hmm. a little name oh this is the city of the beggar i mean we did see the city of the beggars ultimately but you know the city of the beggars like what the city of the beggars what i want to know about that place you know <laughs> oh yeah or, or like when um Coram's father is um he's over a thousand years old yeah. he's probably going to be dying and he's talking about how he needs he, he it's almost his time to go to the chamber of the vapors and I'm like, what? What the hell is the Chamber of Vapors? Right. Like, it's their euthanasia spot. Right. They, it's always ready. <laughs> right. Speaking of which, I believe Stefan that you have to go to a Chamber of the Vapors pretty soon. So. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. All right. So, um, any last thoughts that you want to share with us here about the Night of the Swords? Um, I just encourage people to read it. It's really great. Yeah, it was a very quick read. Definitely get it out there and read it. And how about any projects that you're working on that you want people to know about or how people yeah. can find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at DMBadWrongFun. Um, and I also got a DragonPeakPublishing.com or DragonPeakPublishing at gmail.com. So it's easy to reach me if you want to reach me. Uh, I just wrapped up a Kickstarter for Mysteries of the Multiverse, which is a zine for Mutant Crawl Classics, uh, my second one for that. And uh, it'll be available probably about the time this comes out, probably about a uh, late August or early September uh, 2022. It'll be right. available on Goodman Games, Exalted Funeral, and a few other spots. Cool, cool. And do you have your own web store, or that's really the places Exalted Funeral and Goodman Games uh, for this? I, I have my own website, and it will tell you to go to other web stores. I got I got a big go. job already. That's a lot of All work. Right, having my own store too. Inventory, inventory, is, <laughs> inventory is hell. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Jeff, do you have any last thoughts that you uh, have about the Knight of Swords? I don't, but we can go ahead and I think say goodbye to Stefan, and then you and I can talk about all of our Patreon stuff after he's taken off. Sounds good. Well, y'all have fun with that, and thank you to all the Patreons, too, for uh, helping this keep going, because I sure love the show. Stefan. Yay, thank you, thank you. Such a pleasure to have you on. I wish we had a little longer, so I'm sure we'll have you on again in another time. All All right, see you later. See ya. Okay, cool. So now we can go ahead and chat about our Patreon. So um, we've got some fun news here. We've got winners of our most recent polls for episode 131. We'll be covering P. Jelly Clark's Master of Jin. And for episode 132, we'll be covering Scott Odin's A Gathering of Ravens. Hoy, what are we covering for? Uh, what are our, what are the titles that our patrons get to vote on for episode 134 okay i think we're gonna do uh revisit the idea of secret history so we'll call that secret histories two and so the first uh candidate on there will be the runner-up from the last time we did secret histories which will be um hold on uh our first graphic novel uh uh alan alan moore and eddie campbell's from hell so that's the secret history of jack the ripper uh our second candidate will be michael chabon's or Chabon's, I don't know how you pronounce the name, Gentleman of the Road. 
Uh, third book will be Bruce McAllister's Dream Baby, which is uh, Vietnam War and Psychics. And the th- fourth book will be Patrick Susskind's Perfume, The Story of a Murderer. So that is Secret Histories is the theme. Nice. Our patrons are also able to join us for our patron book clubs. And uh, today we were, we were joined by seven of our patrons. We were joined today by Gabriel Laycock, Robert Coleman, Matt Richards, Rick Byrne, Dan Alexander, Michael Kelly, and Adam Stiers. Thank you all for joining us. I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our newest patrons. Thank you to Ego Orb, Jesse Byrer, Ivan Paul. Ivan Polly or Paul, uh, Thomas Lucas, and Robert Prince. Thank you for joining our Patreon. And I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our existing patrons. Thank you to Patrick, Colin, Richard Ruain, Jeff Willett, Robert Poyton, Caleb Hirth, and Peter Martino. We really appreciate your support. And if you would like to show your support, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. You can join us for our patron book clubs or vote on our upcoming titles. Um, Hoy, how can folks get a hold of us otherwise? Sure. Uh, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, we're also at twi- on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. If you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Apple, Muse- uh, Apple uh, Podcasts or Google Play. It does help people find us. And uh, let's see. Uh, what else? I'm sorry. I can... <laughs> I don't think there is anything else. No, I mean, this is our fr- this is our first time where we had a guest and then they were gone. It's just you and I. So should we just gossip about Stefan for like the next? Oh few yeah, minutes? man. Like I uh, good, yeah, good good head of hair. I have to say, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was funny though when I say that we met in the Tomb of Horrors. Uh, what actually happened was at the Goodman Game Cyclops Con a few years ago, which was a virtual convention that happened like right at the peak of COVID. Um, we. Um, I was kind of hosting an event there that was being streamed over Twitch and Goodman games had a hidden tomb of horrors um, map recreation in the basement of this virtual con. And I found my, the secret pathway into it. And Stefan was in there and I was like, Hey, what's this? And he was like, Oh, it's the tomb of horrors. And I was like, awesome. Well, this is being Twitch streamed. And he's like, cool. You want me to show you around? And I said, sure. So on, on the Twitch stream, we're walking around this like little, um, with our little avatars walking around the tomb of horrors. And he's kind of showing me like, you know, what happens over in this room. Nice. It was really cool. Nice. Nice. I need to catch his, uh, Twitch stream that he's now doing for Goodman, which is, um, rules is written, but I'm just, you know, video and podcasts, you know, it's like, that's the, uh, does the cobbler's uh, do the cobbler's children have new shoes? No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that that's probably all we've got for today. Then, unless Hoy, do you have anything else you want to add? No. Uh, it's always an honor and a pleasure to uh, hear from our listeners. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and of course, we're doing it for you. So, uh, please let us know what else we can do. Uh, any any other books that you know we might have not talked about? We can put them into our list for our polls and we hope to hear from you and see you around uh, IRL or online. Hell yeah. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.